0: So here it is, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the text we're in. I would encourage you, if you've got a Bible, you might want to pull it out. If you've got an app, you can pull it out. If you don't have a Bible app, get one and pull that out and uh, follow along. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses, sorry, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's just hit pause for a second and pray. Father, um, I don't want to mess this up today, and I don't want to get in the way. Uh, It would be really great if you could just let your word bubble to the top, that it would be transformative in our lives, that we would have something we could hold on to today that would make a difference in the way that we live, uh, the way that we work, the way that we play, the way that we engage, with our neighbors in our city, and those in the world that we live around day to day. I just, I just ask for this to make a difference uh, in our lives, and so help us to have a mind that looks for uh, the work you want to do in us through your Word. And we thank you for empowering your Word with the Holy Spirit, and also Holy Spirit, we say, just have your way with us. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, so in the series for Albuquerque, I've been kind of raising the question, why church? And I think this is a, a, a question that we'll, be keep, we'll keep raising throughout uh, this series, because a lot of people during the pandemic have kind of said, you know, why church? You know, like, like uh, you know, uh, they the, the kind of gotten out of the habit, or maybe they're sort of trying to figure out what's the purpose of it all, or maybe people have been kind of watching culturally what's been happening in the world and going, uh, what church? Or what's happening with this? What kind of church? And, and they're just kind of going, what's going on? And What's this all about? And I I love this line from Eugene Peterson's book, Practice the Resurrection. It's a book uh, about uh, the book of Ephesians. It means it's walking like a verse by verse through Ephesians. If you want to pick up a great book about Ephesians, Practice Resurrection by Eugene Peterson is the book you want to pick up. And he says, so why church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. He says the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world is the church. So God has put us here to be that, a colony of heaven in the kingdom of death. Uh, I'll say it in a less, like, you know, uh, Eugene Peterson kind of way. Uh, here's the way I'll say it. Uh, there is a Jesus-y way to live. <laughs> like, that's just a, I mean, this simple sort of way to say it. There's a Jesus-y way to live, and we've been called to live the Jesus-y way. In fact, if you want to know who Jesus is and what he's about, you should be able to find him by introducing yourself to his body, the church. that's working in the, in the community around you. In the book uh, of Ephesians, is you know written to this church that Paul loves, and when Paul showed up in Ephesus, this church planted by Apollos, uh, when he showed up, there was some conflict, like there was some challenge in that church. In fact, Paul's showing up and he's preaching a prophetic message, and about that time there arose in Ephesus no no little disturbance concerning, and here's what Christians were called at the time, the way. Uh, there there was like this these people who were living the Jesusy way. And the juicy way was causing a disturbance. Uh, what happened was Demetrius and some other silversmiths, people who were making idols, were getting a little uncomfortable uh, because uh, they were seeing a threat to their industry of idol making because, uh, well, Paul was showing up and said uh, that, that idols are not to be worshipped. In fact, you see in verse 26, and you see, and here, that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And so Paul was showing up and saying there is a juicy way to live, and here it is, that juicy way to live kind of came in conflict with kind of the culture in the moment in Ephesus, and there was conflict. And so I'm just going to sort of just try to drive this point home for a second here. The way is kind of a Jesus culture and what Ephesians is helping us to sort of understand is a Jesus culture, helping us understand the unique way of Christians formed together in a community known as the church. So Jesus culture is both for, okay, hear me, and distinct from the places it's established. It's both for them and distinct. Now, uh, the Bible uses lots of metaphors to kind of talk about this kind of unique positioning that Christians have. In First Peter, Peter uses the phrase, sojourners and exiles. He says, the one way to think about yourself in the context of the popular world is that you're a sojourner. It's not your home. You're traveling through. And exiles, you don't belong, although you may have an adopted sort of temporary citizenship. Your real citizenship is in heaven, and you are a colony of heaven here on earth. And that's, that, that kind of mentality is unique to sort of, the formation of the mind of Christians, a church, this colony of heaven and the kingdom of death. That's who, that's who we are. Now people are feeling um, like something's happening in the culture right now and they can't quite put their finger on it but they're feeling it. And what what they're feeling is that the, the, the kind of the, the the there is a Okay, Nate. I'm just going to I'm just going to show it to you, okay? Um th- and this slide is is pretty powerful and I, and I try, I'm trying really hard not to be combative. So um, what this shows is church membership over uh, the last few decades, looking at 1940 to 2000 and uh, to 2020. And when you when you kind of look at basically from 2000 to 2020, the last 20 years, there's been a dramatic f- decline in church membership in America. And so what's happening if you're feeling kind of like this, like, whoa, something's going on. Like, why, are, why is all of a sudden there's like this angstiness around Christians in the world? Because Christians in the world were in the majority, and they felt like they were in a position of power. Now they're in a the minority, they feel like they've lost their power, and there's a lot of angstiness. And in church membership, has dramatically declined. And there's an old leadership axiom that says something like this, uh, that uh, your system is perfectly designed for the results it's achieving, and so you could say that if we don't like these results, then we've got to sort of challenge the system and go, are we doing the jesus way thing? Like, are we living that Jesus way? Because if we're living that Jesus way, I think the Holy Spirit might be doing something a little different than seeing this rapid decline. In, in Jeremiah nine seven, we, we read, like, hey, when you're in exile, when, when you're not the majority, you're a minority culture, this is what you do. You seek the will for the city. Where you, you have been sent into exile, you pray on the, to the Lord on his behalf. Like that's what exiles do. And this, this kind of posturing of exile is something I've been talking about in New City since we started New City 10 years ago, and I kind of was sensing this was where culture was going 10 years ago, but now it's like undeniable this is where culture is going. And I think the question is really laid out for you and me is that are we willing to be like an exiled people? Are we willing to be a minority people who are serving from the margins in? Which is why, by the way, when you look at Christian history, it's when Christianity flourishes, is when it's on the margins in. It's always the way it flourishes. So when cultures clash, there's always tension, and this is what I'm afraid of, is that we're experiencing right now in American society a culture clash, and there's a lot of tension. And people don't like tension. They really don't like tension. Uh, If you like tension, you're a jerk, okay? (laughs) Like, that's, you know, if, like, that's who, you know, I'm sorry, but that's who you are, you know, so you probably should repent and turn from your ways. People don't like tension. And so to resolve tension people are tempted to do one of two things, and these are strong temptations. They're to fight and isolate, or they are to to give in and assimilate, and so what's happening in this moment of tension, there's some biblical truths that if you hold them, it puts you in a weird place in society, and it makes people feel like, I got tension, and it's like, oh, And so I could just make an enemy of people who disagree with me and then fight them and isolate. Or I could say, this tension is just too much. I'm just going to give in and assimilate. Maybe I'm just, you know. And people don't want to hold that tension. But, you know, Christianity can't be taken out of culture. Like, it's not how it's designed. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, and I don't know if this is going to make sense to you, but Leslie Newbegin was a sociologist, philosopher, church mythologists, and he wrote this about Christianity and culture. He said the idea that one can or could at any time separate out by some process of distillation a pure gospel unadulterated by any cultural uh, assertions is an illusion. It is in fact an abandonment of the gospel, for the gospel is about the word made flesh. You could call it the, the word embedded in cultural context. Yet the gospel, which is from the beginning to the end embodied in cultural conditioned forms, calls into question all cultures, including the one which it was originally embodied. In other words, you can't just take Jesus out of the culture because Jesus became flesh to engage with the culture. So the way, and this is this is combative. I mean, this is like what I'm about to say is a tension. Uh, the way is the way of life in the land of death. Like that's, it is, it is combative to say there is a way in the world that leads to death. Like it is, it is to put yourself in position of tension to say there is a truth that governs the world, and we are seeking after that truth, which means there is falsehood, and people can have bad ideas and do bad things. And there are things that are true, that are worthy of our attention and affection. And so Paul begins our section, our reading today, by talking about the way of the world, which is the way of death. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, now listen, following the course of this world. In other words, you were once a part of a culture that was only producing as its result death following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of and the sons of disobedience and i will s- i will say that the bible continually talks about uh, the enemy's power in the world and the enemy's power o- of deception and the enemy's power to uh, to work within even uh, individuals and in cultural settings to deceive. And so there is a there is a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the, less, like, like the rest of mankind. And so, it is impossible, and I, I can't underline and Make this more bold. It is impossible. This is not hyperbole. It, it is impossible to be living in a Jesus way without at some point showing distinction. Without at some point saying there is a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death. You can't do it. You can't, you can't live uh, in a way that you're following Jesus without at some point coming into a place of tension and even a potential conflict. He says, hey, that... Following the prince of the power, like that, the whole thing, like you once walked that way, he says to the church of Ephesus, like you were once walking in a way that was predominantly controlled by a spirit that's, a, that's the enemy, that's the devil at work in the world, like that's how you once walked. Now, I want to say this, just in terms of clarification, the church is not for the culture or against the culture, the church is for Jesus. And so sometimes when we are for Jesus, we can say yes to, like, um, God loves immigrants. We can say yes, and God loves life. Like, we can say yes, God loves, and we can say yes to lots of things. And those things, it, you know, you can't pick political sides and go, that, that political side embodies the whole Jesus thing. It doesn't. It just, it doesn't. The church is for Jesus, and that's confusing to the world. And the world goes, man, you guys are Confusing. When you go a few verses earlier to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, and so if you just kind of have your Bible app, you can just scroll down a little bit, and you see Ephesians one nineteen. "...and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might?" that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now listen to what he says about Jesus. Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Like it's all about him. Like he's in charge. Like he calls the shots. It's his kingdom. We are the kingdom citizens that follow after Jesus in the Jesus way. And above every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. And that is true now, today and forevermore. Like Jesus is king and we follow him. And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him uh, the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is fundamentally about the one who is the head that is Jesus who's calling the shots and animating the body and putting the body at work in the world so that's what we're about like that's what we that's what we cling to and so when you when you're going out in the world and mean all this tension I don't I need to how do I resolve all this tension what's going on with the tension in the world like where's my true north it's going to be the Word of God expressing the desires of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who says this is my kingdom and my kingdom way and this is what I want you to do and so you might pick up the book of Ephesians so so Jesus what do you want me to do in the context of your body at work in the world world, and that's what you'll discover. You'll discover your marching orders in the book of Ephesians. This is what God wants you to do as a part of His body at work in the world. Now, Eugene Peterson says, the popular religious practice in our culture is to cross-fertilize American with Christian, and they come up with a hybrid. When the wild bull of American ambition is bred with a tame Christianity with no cross, the result is mongrel spirituality. And so here's my My thinking on this: that many people think they've rejected Christianity when they've really rejected a mongrel Christianity. And there's some people out in their world going, "Man, I'm not. I can't. If that's what Christian is, I can't be about it." And I want to say that's not what Christian is. Like you just you you think you you think you see something, but you're seeing a mongrel version of it. And so the question really is always: what informs what? What informs what? Is Jesus King? That He informs everything else. He informs everything else, form, function, all of it. He informs everything else. And so at the end of the day, we have to just kind of ask, like when I'm having this sense of tension, when I'm having this sense of sort of what's informing that tension? Like what is my true north? What is is the reason that I'm holding this tension? Again from Peterson, he says, In 50 years of being a pastor, my most difficult assignment continues to be the task of developing a sense among the people I serve of the soul-transforming implications of grace. A, a comprehensive foundational reorientation from living anxiously by my wits and muscle to living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence. Now, listen is what he says. The prevailing North American culture is a context of persistent denial of grace. He said in the prevalent American context, what you have is you have a, a group of people who are defining themselves by what they do, not by what Christ has done. And it is, it, is a, it, is a, it is a force at work saying your value is directly related to your performance. And then Jesus shows up and says, no, nope, it's not true. That's not grace. And so I'm just going to make two points today. And that was my introduction. So, you know, we're just now into it. All right. I'm going to make two points today. Why church? Here they are. Because the church is a people receiving grace. And the church is a people giving grace. So I want to talk about the church is a people receiving grace for a second. We receive a grace by receiving the work of God. And this is something we can't miss. The grace that we received came through work. And so if God doesn't do the work, we can't receive the grace. And so the work is what delivered us the grace. And so you go back to that prayer in Ephesians 1.19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Like, like, Do you see the work of God? The work of God was redeeming work. He, he did the work when He lived the life you could not live. He did the work when He died the death that you should have died. He did the work when He raised the dead and conquered sin and death itself. Like He did the work. He did the work that you could not do for yourself. And you can only receive grace because God has first done the work. And the work was the means by which the grace was given to you. It was the means by which you received the grace. But at some point, we've all believed the lie because we swim in the waters called American culture. The lie is you can save yourself through your work. You don't need a Savior. You don't need somebody who could live the life that you could have lived and die the death that you should have died. What you need is just to work harder and try harder. And what happens is we tend to attach how we feel about ourselves to what others think about our performance. That's just kind of like the way that American people think and live and believe. Like my significance is somehow intertwined with your thinking about my performance. This is why failure hurts so much because we have a success idolatry. Uh, let me put it this way. To fail at work hurts so bad because our identity is so easily tied to our work. And when we fail, sometimes we feel like, man, this is soul-crushing. But the only reason it's soul-crushing is you made work your Savior. Now, uh, recently I was <laughs> listening to this podcast, and Anne Lamont was on it. And she was talking about this book she wrote years ago, and I was like, man, that's really cool. And I went back, and I started like reading this book that she wrote years ago. And she, she stumbled a- upon, this priest kind of gave her these kind of five rules of the world, Uh, You might say these are like kind of the five hidden rules of the world, Um, the kind of the rules that that govern kind of the way people interact in society, but no one says it out loud. Uh, Rule number one is you must not have anything wrong with you or anything different. Uh, So you you got you can't hold tension. You got to just get you know just got fit in. Rule number two is if you have something wrong with you, you must get over it as soon as possible. (laughs) And so, you know, you got a lot of people really anxious trying to get over what they feel like is wrong with them. Rule number three is, if you can't get over it, you must pretend that you have. And this is kind of like that, just kind of peeling back the layers of society. how many people feel like they're just right now pretending? They can't be who they really are because, you know, if they believed that if you could see who they really were, then you wouldn't love them because they've attached their value to what they do in their work. (laughs) Um, rule number four is if you can't even pretend that you have you shouldn't show up you should stay home because it's hard for everyone else to (laughs) have to be around you (laughs) it's just one of those like you think about it Like they don't want to see your difference you know that's how we feel right in the world they don't want to see your weirdness out there (laughs) in the world Rule number five is if you're going to insist on showing up, you should at least have the decency to feel ashamed. <laughs> I don't, can't you relate to that? Like, just relate to like this American sort of society we live in just kind of breeds that kind of rules for living. This is why the grace of God can be so freeing. The grace of God is so freeing because it is the gift of God's work overcoming the failures of our work. It's just, it's just freeing. Uh, you know, Jesus on the cross is scorning the shame, like just so freeing. So the good news is not about what you must do. It's always about what God has done. That's always the good news. It's so, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of because, you know, my, you know, <laughs> sense of self is grounded and rooted in, in an achievement that Christ has already achieved for me. That's why it can't be taken away. That's why we can sing songs about it not being taken away. And so I always say the good news is I can't, or he did, because he did, I can, and that's always the way it goes. And so the Christian person always shows up first as an imperfect person and believing that Jesus did for them what they couldn't do for themselves and then, and then trusting in that and saying, you know, I'm going to go out and be courageous in the world, taking steps of faith because I know Christ has already done for me what I have failed to do for myself. And so what this passage is doing for you and me is just trying to sort of drive that I can't home, like really home. And this is different than religion, All right, This is different than religion. Christianity is different religion in this way. Because the gospel is not about making bad people good. It's about ma- bringing dead people to life. And one of the things that Paul's saying in this, in this passage is like, well, I'm not talking about just like minor tweaks of adjustment in your morality. I'm talking about you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and Christ has made you alive. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, like you're, you're incapable. Like, you can't. That's the confession. You can't. You're dead. You can't do it, and He's done for you what you can't do for yourself. And so you were dead in your trespasses of sins, but God, verse 4, in His mercy, His rich mercy, uh, because he, the great love of which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Let me just, I'm just going to press in, okay, a little bit here, that Jesus can save you from the wrath of American success idolatry. And what I mean by that is that some of you um, don't have time to even worry about the wrath of God because you haven't gotten over the wrath that you have for yourself because of all the failures you've accumulated over time. And there are so many people who look at themselves and on a daily basis in their honest moments, and they are not happy with what they see. And they live with this constant sense of like just pressure to perform and feel like this constant sense of failure to perform. And I just want you to know the good news is Jesus has done it for you. The good news is that Paul shows up and says, by the way, you can't do it anyway. Like, he did it for you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has not worked, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want to tell you, if you just have an issue with that, I just want you to just do some self-evaluation because you are a child of wrath. man. I, I, if you grew up in American, of American society and you've ever tried to achieve anything in your life, you've ever experienced failure in your life, you know what it's like to feel like a child of wrath because you heaped plenty of wrath upon yourself for all of your failures in life. And then Jesus shows up and goes, you know what, uh, I covered it. I did the work for you. I did the work you couldn't do. So Jesus can save you, all right, from punishing yourself for your failures. That's what he does. <laughs> By the way, uh, when you receive this truth, like when you really receive it intellectually, I didn't plan to say this, but it's just, this is free, all right? So uh, the rest of you have to pay for it, but this is free, all right? So, but li- 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 like this is really interesting. I mean, this is really interesting to me. When you get it, like in this, you know, we're, we're going to get it imperfectly in this life, okay? We're going to get it imperfectly. But there are moments when you get it, and it points you to what you're gonna really experience one day. But when the moments when you get it, you, you realize that man, I, I, um, like it's just like, like when you when you get it, and and you're and you're, and you're not thinking about yourself anymore, because you're you're freed from the bondage of self, and you have like this love of God and love of neighbor kind of taking its place. Like like you're amaze- you'll be amazed at how much room is in your head. Because there's so much room occupied with self-judgment. And when, you, there's, when all that room is so occupied with self-judgment, it's just not room for anybody else. There's not room for loving God. There's not room for loving the neighbor. It's just all this self-judgment that's going on like crazy. And when you get it, you kind of get a flash forward of what it's going to be like in the new heavens, new earth one day when you look in the mirror and you're going to go, I'm exactly who I'm supposed to be. And when you have that experience, like, I'm exactly who I'm supposed to be. Man, it's such a freeing experience. I want that for you. So when we receive grace, we're receiving Jesus' work and his accolades in exchange for all of our failures. And this is what's cool uh, about the passage, is that we don't only ex- receive like the grace of forgiveness of sins, we receive all the accolades of Jesus, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved— and raise us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You hear that? Raise us up with him, seated us with him. Like we're not only receiving the grace of forgiveness of sins, we're receiving the accolades of all the work that Christ has, has done. So we are seated with him. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Like he raises with him and showing us and giving us the accolades. That's why we do not boast in our resume as Christians, we boast in Christ's resume. And so when the enemy comes at you and starts like accusing you and, and pointing out your false and pointing out your failures and starts dominating all that headspace you can just confess christ did the work for me i don't want to boast in his resume for by grace you've been saved through faith this is not your own doing it's the gift of god not a result of work so nobody can boast so I'm not going to face the accusation by going, I can do this. i got enough in me. I can make it happen. I want to pull myself up from my bootstraps, all those American identity ideas. You know, I'm just going to go out there and do it and put my head up high and put my chest out and get it done. That's just not the gospel. The gospel, we don't boast in ourselves. We go, you know what, enemy, I know that I'm a failure. I know I've blown it, but the good news is Christ did the work for me. And I claim his righteousness of my own, and the accolades of his achievement is my own. I'm a son of the king, a daughter of the king. Like that's that's what you get to claim. Right? That's your reality. Why church? The church is a people receiving grace. Receiving it in the context of community. The church is a people giving grace, giving grace. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ, she is for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this passage, always for me, gets isolated as kind of like the next thought. And I just have never picked this up before, so you're, I'm learning along with you here. I was reading a commentator this week, and he says, In the, in the original Greek, there are two sentences. One, from two, one to seven and the second from 2, 8 to 10. And so if you're like looking at your text, and you're okay, 1 to 7, 8 to 10. The first of these teaches us about what God has done. He is the main subject in His activity. To make alive is the main verb of the section. The second section explains how His activity affects our daily living. And so what what Paul does by putting 8, 9, and 10 together as a single sentence, he's saying you can't separate grace from work. You can't do it. So here's the single sentence. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's like Paul is saying in this sentence in Greek, I, I want you to know you can't separate grace from works. They're not like, it's not like work is opposed to grace in some way. You're saved by faith through grace because God worked. You see? You're saved by faith through grace because God worked. And all of God's work in creation is grace. Like what God did in creation, making light, you know, make, you know, making plants and animals and all this stuff. It's all for human flourishing. It's God's grace, and God's doing work to do grace. And he says, hey, Adam and Eve, this is before the fall, because work's not a part of the curse. This is before the fall. Work is good. It's part of the good, good thing that God created. God's created work. and he goes, you guys go out and have dominion over these things and cultivate and create, because work is good. And he goes, go out and do grace in work, like I did grace in work for you. And all of God's work in salvation is grace. It's God's work in saving grace. He did the work. So here, okay, listen. God intends for your work to deliver His grace. God intends for your work to deliver His grace. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, Peterson really is helpful here. He says, Good work and good works are to grace what a pail is to water, a container to get it from the well to the supper table. God's grace is the content. Our work, after the manner of Jesus, is the container. So, our work is how we take with us the grace of Jesus in our daily life. It's how we deliver it, it's the vessel. Now, there are two ways that we go wrong with work. I'm just going to real quickly. One is that we spiritualize work by making it an idol and serving it rather than the means of God's grace. And so we go, oh, work is somehow like the ultimate, the end all, and this is all about work. We serve work as the idol, and we don't serve Jesus as King and Lord, but somehow we've made the work our King and Lord in our life, and it covers everything that we do in our life. So we spiritualize work. And one of the other things we do is we pietize work. My wife says, that's not a word. And I know I make up words. I like to make up words. It is my right to do that. We pietize work by making religious work a higher order of work than secular work. And we say, oh, you know what real work is? Christian work. But your work in construction is is not quite as important. You know, Your, your work at the cash register is like kind of a, you know, that's just not the way the Bible sees it. Now, I, I made this observation this week and you can read the Bible and test me on it. This is, Really interesting. None of the apostles, these are like the 12 that Jesus chose, none of the apostles had any credentials from the religious workplace. (laughs) Jesus openly avoided the standard religious practices of fasting, praying in public, and conventional Sabbath keeping. And with very few exceptions, all the work of Jesus took place in the secular setting, in marketplace settings. So the two questions I want you to ponder, okay, are this. Have you received Jesus' work through his work? Or have you received Jesus' grace through his work? Okay, are you, you know, is your, is your, is your soul satisfied in the work of Jesus? Do, do, you, do you have a sense right now? And I, I'm not saying, you know, like, oh yeah, back then I chose Jesus and I was saved. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about like right now. Is your soul satisfied in the complete and finished work of Jesus? Or do you still feel like you have something to add to it on Monday? Do you still feel like, oh, but Monday I'm going to contribute to my salvation? Or is it complete and finished? Is Monday a get-to or is Monday a have-to? That's another way of saying it. If it's a have-to, it's an idol. If it's a get-to, you can make it worship how is your work a vessel for grace? How is your work a vessel for the grace of Jesus for others? I was talking this over with my wife. She goes, you really should spend, you should have spent more time on that point because that's where people need practical help. And I was like, you know, I'm out of time. Uh, But also, I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit will lead you. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit's just going to say, you know what, on Monday, here's how I want you to work in such a way that someone experiences grace. And maybe if you just prayed about it, you know, how can my work be a vessel today for God's grace? Maybe He'll do something for you. Why church? Well, the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. It's the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the jesus Nuggeri kingdom of this world. Like, why church? Because Monday, <laughs> your friends at work, your co-workers, your, your enemies at work, <laughs> you know, they, um, they need you. They need you be god's presence in the workplace to be his hands his feet his body at work activated they need you all right here's the last thing i'm gonna say and then you know whatever we'll pray the change america needs will only come about if the church commits to grace-filled work that is powered by the holy spirit I showed that graph earlier of like just this dramatic decline in Christian membership and I would be easy to look at that and go oh this is doomsday and oh man this is terrible and I'll be honest with you I look at it and go we're building a building and you know like that's um, kind of scary <laughs> you know to be in a time like this and, and then uh, I have to be reminded that oh yeah by the way the Holy Spirit builds a church the last time I checked the Holy Spirit was pretty powerful yeah. <laughs> you know, Holy Spirit's like raising Jesus from the dead and stuff, like we don't have anything to worry about, and you know, you might be looking at the work week this week going, I don't know how Jesus is going to use me in the work week to bring about his grace for somebody, the Holy Spirit's pretty powerful, yeah, Yeah. all right, and so uh, I just reminded Father that your Spirit moves, and um your spirit is like a wind and unpredictable. <laughs> and, and boy, I would like to um, you know, just call out and command you know, your spirit to do the things that I want your spirit to do. <sighs> but instead, we need to be set in sail and just go on where your spirit leads us. And so my, my prayer, um, Holy Spirit, is that you'll lead us this week in our work week, that you'll lead us as missionaries, that you'll lead us as grace givers in the world. Help us to receive your grace. Um, Holy Spirit, if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ's work uh, for, their <laughs> for them, would you, Holy Spirit, just like convince them right now? It's just, they belong. They belong to you. Uh, for New City Church, I pray this would be a Spirit-filled community ready for mission. And uh, use us this week as missionaries. Where we live, work, and play, uh, have your way with us. Uh, You're the king, Lord Jesus. We bow the knee to you and to nobody else. You get to call the shots. You're the head of the church. It's about you and you foremost. Um, So help us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.